All right. <clears throat> well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. We'll be looking at verse 22 through chapter 23, verse 11. And you can find it on page 932 there in the Pew Bibles. There's a common refrain that we see throughout Scripture. You don't have to look very hard or read very far uh, to encounter God's Word to you, this, this encouragement that He gives, this promise that He gives, this, this command and affirmation and hope that He gives to take courage, to take heart, to not be afraid. God has continually directed His people throughout the history of the world as He has engaged them and spoken to them regardless of their situations, not to look to themselves, not to look to their circumstances, but to look to Him. God has given us these words to be a continual comfort to brothers and sisters across time and across the globe as they have suffered uh, faithfully for Christ. These words were given to encourage and to strengthen us in the midst of our trials and difficulties to set our eyes upon Christ. Christ, take courage, take heart, do not be afraid. But why? I mean, why does, why does God command us to take courage? I mean, God could have created a world where there was no need to take courage, right? Everything was perfect, everything was glorious, there was no fall, there was no suffering or death or hardship. You know, could have made a world like that. Or he could have made a world in which, you know, as soon as you come to faith in Christ, you're sort of whisked away to be with God in his glory forever. God could have created a world in which once you come to faith in Christ that your life just becomes awesome, you know, like everything works exactly the way you want it to. But he didn't. On the other end, I mean, he could have created a world in which he wound it up, let it go, removed himself from it entirely, and said, you know what? Whatever will be, will be. But God didn't do that, did he? Instead, he created this world in which God is sovereign over every detail of life. There is pain and suffering and hardship and difficulty in the world. And God speaks to us tenderly. Take courage. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Now God says that because we live in a fallen world that is filled with opposition and strife and hardship and calamity. God says this to us because by nature we are fearful people who are prone to worry, to anxiety, to discouragement and despair. God says this to us because we have a tendency to look to ourselves and to our situation as affirmation for how we truly are. Like if life is going good, then I must be good with God. Or if life is going well, then look at me, I'm better than others around me. Or if life is going well, then, then I must be okay by my own standard. And so we're constantly sort of looking at our circumstances and situations and saying, you know what, I'm good as long as I feel that way towards God, towards others, or towards myself. God says this because we have an inclination to strive to live lives that require no courage. I'm struck by that this week. You see, it doesn't take courage for us to say, travel the globe, eat good food, 
sit on a beach somewhere and soak up the sun. Takes no courage to do that. Takes no courage for us to veg out in front of a TV screen or play video games or, or scroll through porn in the dark. Takes no courage for us to, to relish in material securities, to look at stocks and bonds and you know, everything we have in the bank account and, and take great hope and comfort in that. It, it takes no, no courage for us to surround ourselves with people who look and act and think just like we do And it takes no courage to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. But it does take courage to live with and for Christ. As much as God has a purpose in the blessings that we receive from Him, all of the joys and the gifts and the pleasures and the delights that we are so readily thankful for, God also has great purpose in the challenges in the hardships, in the pain that we endure so that we might take courage. You see, there are lessons to be learned in life, in a life that requires courage. Lessons that we can't really learn in times of plenty. And what we're going to see from our passage this morning as we look at the risk and the uncertainty and the unjust persecution that Paul had to endure is that courage is required to learn and to experience God's grace. Courage is required to maintain a good conscience before God and others. Courage is required to bear witness to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are lessons that we learn in lives that require courage. And so what we're going to see from Acts chapter 22, verse 22 through chapter 23, verse 11 this morning is to take courage to learn God's grace, to maintain a good conscience, and to bear witness of Christ to the world. Take courage to learn God's grace, to maintain a good conscience, and to bear witness of Christ to the world. May our hearts take courage then as we read Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. Now Paul has just given a defense before a mob that was ready to lynch him, right? And it says, up to this word, and that word being go, therefore I will send you far away to the Gentiles, they listened to him, but then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, 
I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and nothing... uh, great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees, Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, we see nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him. And said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, in this passage, God is calling us to take courage, to learn God's grace, to maintain a good conscience, and to bear witness of Christ to the world. And so I want us to look at each of those three purpose statements in turn. And so first, take courage to learn God's grace. Now, it might surprise you, but learning and experiencing God's grace requires courage. Right? Even, even in God's common grace towards all mankind that He gives to everyone, courage is needed to truly experience that grace in its fullness. I mean, we have been told that God has given us life and breath and everything. Everything that you could claim as your own in life, every experience you've ever had, every joy, every pleasure, every breath that you draw, every beat of your heart is given to you by God to be enjoyed in relationship to Him. And yet we must take courage to experience that, otherwise we miss out on the joy of that grace. If someone is afraid to leave their house, they miss out on the joys of things like community or work or nature. If someone is afraid to travel, they miss out on the pleasures of breathtaking landscapes or the beauty of meeting and learning about different cultures. A fear of trying new foods like some of my kids experience robs them of the joys of their taste buds and consequently leave more for me. Fear of relationships, though, rob you of love. Fear of the unknown robs you of excitement. Fear of sorrow robs you of joy. The fear of hurt can rob you of delight. And a fear or a Willful ignorance of the one who gave all of those things to us robs us of enjoying all of his gifts in their fullness. 
You see, it actually takes courage to recognize that all of these good gifts to be enjoyed come from the hand of our loving Father. And that's just God's common grace towards us given to continually and undeserved gifts that He gives to all mankind, right? Now, receiving the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that too requires courage. Friends, it, it takes courage to take God's word about himself and his work over your own reason, over your own intellect, your own experience, your own culture, uh, and what the culture tells you, your own education, to trust in the fact that there is an eternal, all-powerful, all-wise, self-sufficient God who is perfect in all of his ways, who made and sustains all that there is for us to be enjoyed, and he makes himself known through his word. It takes courage to trust in him, to trust in that over and above your own experience, your own reason your own intellect, your own education. It takes courage to trust that God has made Himself known through His Word and most specifically through His Son, Jesus Christ. It requires courage to look full on at this holy God who is Himself the standard of perfection, of holiness, of goodness, of rightness. And to be able, in light of that, to examine ourselves and realize, you know what, I am, I am not basically okay. That in fact, I am corrupt. I am a sinner by nature, a rebel to His will and to His ways. It's a woeful realization that I am completely unable to save myself. It requires courage to take rest in the fact that God can forgive a sinner like me. That the perfect life, death, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the subsequent resurrection from the dead is more than enough to cover all my sin, to give me new life in His name, and to adopt me, an enemy of God, as a beloved child. Because when I look at myself, sometimes I often wonder, takes courage to repent and believe. It takes courage to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. But friends, God's grace doesn't end right there, and neither does the need to have courage to learn and to experience the grace that He gives. You see, that grace calls us into a new relationship with God. And that new relationship requires new allegiances that I now live for Him. He is my Father. He is where I find my identity, not in the things of this world. Our life is now different than it was before. Like, so here you have Paul, right? Paul's a Jew. He's called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles in the name of Jesus. And so he's not a Jew in the same way that he was a Jew before. And he's not a Gentile either. And this whole situation here is leading to this conflict that he finds himself in as he strives to live by grace through faith. His life has been this crazy roller coaster of blessings and hardship in Christ. I mean, God has used him, this, this former persecutor of the church, to preach the gospel to thousands and thousands and thousands of people, many coming to faith in Christ. God has worked miracles through him. God has used him to establish new churches throughout the Roman Empire, to train up leaders, to carry on and, and further establish the ministry in these new areas, and to expand the mission of Christ to the very ends of the earth. 
But friends, it was not without hardship. He suffered the loss of so many things. You think about family and friends, his reputation, no doubt possessions as well. He experienced beatings and stonings and shipwreck, imprisonment and the like. And yet through it all, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not lost. Right? It was not overcome by all of the trials and the hardships that he endured. It accomplished all its purposes in him. That grace strengthened him in the midst of pain and weakness to help him to see the glory of Christ even in the midst of his suffering and find it all the sweeter. It was the never-failing grace of God that drew him into holy communion with our triune God. And through that delight of his union with Christ, Paul penned some of the most treasured words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the Christian faith. I mean, think about how God, by His grace, used every single part of Paul's life for the edification and the expanse of his church. So much so, we're still talking about it today. I mean, even here in this context, we see the grace of God working in Paul's life. I mean, chapter 21 sets the stage. Paul's there in the temple. He's willingly submitting to ceremonial purification, though he doesn't need to. He's free from the law, but he does so in order to leave no stumbling block to the gospel when he is slandered and almost stoned. And yet, God delivers him by the hand of a Roman tribune of all things. Right, a, a general over 600 soldiers. Right? And then after this guy has to, to grab him, chain him to two different guards, and even at one point they're carrying him to keep him away from the violent crowd, Paul asks to address the crowd, and this man lets him. That doesn't happen. Paul tells them then of his faithful Jewish background, of his miraculous conversion to Christ, and he begins to proclaim the gospel to them. But as soon as he mentions Christ's call for him to go to the Gentiles, we see here in verse 22 that they try to lynch him again for the second time. And yet for the second time, this man steps in to protect him. Now they're shouting they're throwing off their cloaks. They're flinging their dust in the air just as they had done when they had stoned Stephen and Paul was there holding their garments, stood by in approval of that. And yet, here we have God intervening this time. God, by His grace, allows this tribune to step in, in verses 24 through 29. And this man is determined to get the truth out of Paul by flogging him. Right? This is truth by torture. I'm going to get to the bottom of this, so I'm going to beat you till you tell me the truth. Right? But again, God's grace towards Paul is made clear. Paul is a Roman citizen, and therefore, they cannot do this to him. Right? And, and so, we even see there that, that it, I mean, if you think about it, it would have been expedient for, 
for this man to just go ahead and kill Paul and make the crowd happy, wipe his hands of it. But no, instead he gets into this dialogue about whose citizenship is kind of better, right? And Paul's like, mine's by birth. And the guy's like, I had to pay a big bribe for mine. And so this man is still concerned about justice. That didn't have to be the case. He's a just man who is resolved to get to the bottom of the issue. And so he unbound Paul and brought him informally before the council to try to discern the real reason why he's being accused. This guy's going above and beyond what he really needs to. And you've got to ask yourself, why is the case? Why, Why is this man so concerned about justice and keeping the peace? And yet he's an instrument of God's grace for Paul's protection and the upholding of Paul's innocence. Down in Chapter 23, verse 10, after this dissension between Pharisee and Sadducee became violent, the tribune would step in yet a third time to protect Paul and would be the means through which Paul began to make his way to Rome by the will of God. But the Lord Jesus appeared before him and stood by him and said, take courage. Take courage because all of this is happening for a reason. Take courage because all of this is happening not as a means for you to try to earn God's grace or or because God's not really happy with you, but so that you could see and experience God's grace for what it is. You see, everything that happens in life is ordained by our good, wise, gracious, and sovereign Father so that we might learn of His grace. Many times it's hard for us to see or to understand why things are happening the way they are. But we can look at Paul's life and see that these trials and these afflictions that he had to endure, it meant blessing for Paul and blessing for those who would hear him. It's blessing for us because we're talking about it today. And Paul says this over and over again in his letters. I mean, if you think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, he said this is a light and momentary affliction, right? And and he's talking about beatings and sufferings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and all that kind of stuff. It's a light momentary affliction that is welling up for me, an eternal weight of glory. He's in chains there in Rome. He writes to the Philippians and said, hey, you know what? This has really served to advance the gospel. He says to the Ephesians, look, what I'm suffering right now as I'm in prison is for your glory. It's for your benefit. Paul could say that because he understood God's grace in it all. It was blessing after blessing after blessing as he is learning of God's abundant grace and he is teaching it and commending it to others as well. He's commending it to us even in what we read here in this text this morning. Friends, it takes courage to see it and to learn of God's all-sufficient grace. If Paul was just trying to seek his own comfort or security, he would not have known Christ as he did, and nor would he have been used by Christ so greatly. As A.W. Tozer once said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. We see that in Paul. And we don't just see it in Paul. We see it in the apostles. We see it in the prophets, both in Old and New Testament. We see it in so many heroes of the faith throughout church history. It takes courage to learn God's grace. 
The call of Christ is a call to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Him. And friends, that will not be easy. It will not be comfortable. It will not be safe. But it is gain. You get Christ, and others get Him too. And that is far, far better. You get to learn and experience the grace of God far more abundantly than you experience it now, but you won't if you live in fear or if you live in the flesh, seeking the world's comforts and securities rather than finding them in Christ. You won't know God's comfort or God's power in the midst of your weakness if you refuse to look for God's grace in the midst of your trials. You won't know that you can learn Christ more deeply if you live a life that can be adequately sustained by yesterday's grace. Do you get that? Because I think that that's a lot of times the way that we go through life. God gives me grace. Yesterday, I think that's enough. I'm going to try to operate just kind of on my own and go through things just thinking I'm fine because I've got that grace yesterday rather than living a life every day that, that where I'm in complete dependence upon God's grace here and now. When that's what he calls us to. But to learn and experience God's abundant grace takes courage. It takes a life that requires courage. And friends, I don't want us to be afraid to take hold of the lavish grace of God that He offers us every moment of every day through every trial and circumstance that we face so that we might behold the glory and the all-sufficient grace of God through His Son by faith in Christ. Paul wants us to understand that. That's why when you read his letters, he says it over and over and over again. And so take courage to learn God's grace. Second, may we take courage to maintain a good conscience. And we don't hear a lot about the conscience today. Perhaps that's because Jiminy Cricket just kind of ruined it for us all. You know, we can't take the concept of conscience seriously now that it's a cricket running around saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, right? Uh, more than likely, it's because we live in such a confused culture that, you know, we don't, we don't talk about it. But the conscience is a big deal to Paul. Out of the 29 times conscience is referenced in the Bible, 20 of them actually come from Paul's lips. He's very concerned about our conscience. Now, when we say conscience, our conscience is the internal discernment of one's heart based upon external moral norms, okay? Your conscience is not moral norm, okay? Your conscience is not law, all right? It, it is your assessment of your own heart, or maybe sometimes the hearts of others inappropriately, based upon some external norm. It's the inward approval or condemnation of our thoughts, attitudes, and actions based first and foremost on one's self-assessment in light of God's moral law, and perhaps second, in light of some cultural moral norm. So, for example, God's law says you shall not murder. And our cultural laws concur with that, right? Now, a good conscience 
is a conscience that says, based upon that, I will not murder, or if I happen to murder, I will experience remorse, sorrow, repentance, and faith for that. I'm, I'm willing to make restitution for my sin. I'm going to own it, right? And that is contradictory to, say, a defiled or a seared conscience that won't experience guilt even if you are guilty and the court finds you guilty. And so our conscience is not moral law. It is one's heart assessment based upon external moral laws or norms. Paul says this matters. Your conscience matters. His conscience clearly in this text matters. Right? And he taught that, look, there are, there's sort of three kinds of consciences out there. There's, there's a good conscience, it, which keeps to those moral laws, right? Strives to do what is right, to walk in obedience and faithfulness to God in repentance and faith. That's a good conscience. Then there's also a, a weak conscience because you are judging yourself or others based upon some faulty moral norm. Right? And so you have a desire to do it, it's right, but you don't have what's right nailed down. So for example, like the guy that thinks that all sex is sin and cannot be enjoyed even within the covenant of marriage because he has a warped view of sin and its goodness, right? That's an example of a weak conscience. A third type of conscience that we see that Paul talks about are those whose consciences are defiled or seared. They have hardened their hearts towards God in areas of life and doctrine. So they experience no remorse for their sin in those ways, right? It could be immorality. Also, he, he says this of false teachers as well. They just don't care. And so they don't experience sorrow and sin in ways that we should. And, and since we live in a day in which God and his law are doubted and questioned and outright denied, or they've exchanged those truths for, for subjective norms like that we choose for ourselves, and because our culture can't seem to make heads or tails of moral norms at all, it's not surprising that we don't hear a whole lot about the conscience. We tend to just equate it with fleeting feelings that can't ever be trusted. Or maybe, maybe we're on the other end, like the complete other end where it's like we're hypersensitive about it. And, and just like, you know, we're towards things that we shouldn't or, or we over-scrutinize or feel guilty about everything because our moral norms are off or, or we can't seem to rest in Christ. Or, or maybe, maybe we're lax because our consciences have been defiled or seared along with our culture. That we don't experience guilt over things that we should. This is where most of us are going to be, honestly, in this room. But it takes courage to maintain a good conscience, both before God and others. Paul says there in chapter 23, verse 1, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He's saying, look, I have, I have labored my entire life to live in faithfulness to God, both in life and in doctrine, before God and others. He says, look, my, my teaching is consistent with God's revelation of himself. I have gone to great pains to uphold sound doctrine, even when it would have been easier to ignore the distinctions or to go light on truth or, or to be like false teachers, to have defiled or seared conscience that rejects the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. 
But if Paul hadn't been faithful to sound doctrine, he would have still been one of these Pharisees. But his good conscience to maintain sound doctrine made him an enemy towards these religious leaders who were rejecting God's truth. Paul had a good conscience regarding the way he lived his life. Not not because he was pretending to be sinless or to be perfect, but because he lived in repentance and faith. Because he labored to be faithful to God in all things. That that he truly labored to live for the glory of God and not for himself. He had a respect for all mankind, desiring to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And we see that everywhere he goes, right, he treats others with honor and respect. I mean, even right here, when this tribune is about to put him to torture in order to discover the truth, he doesn't threaten He doesn't curse. He doesn't demand his own rights. Now, he does seek to maintain his rights, but he doesn't use them as an entitlement for indignation towards others, the way we so often see it in our culture. As they're stretching him out for the whips, you can almost hear him saying, pardon me, good sir, I regret impeding on your duties here, but perchance did you know whether or not it is lawful for you to to flog an uncondemned Roman citizen. I would hate for you to do anything that you would come to later regret. As even in Paul's statement, he's not simply concerned with his own welfare. He's not simply concerned about his own rights. What he thinks is right or wrong, what he thinks is fair, he's also concerned about them. I don't want you to do anything that's unlawful. This is not a me-first mentality. That's not Paul demanding his own way. He's still submitting to the governing authorities even when they are about to flog him or even when the tribune wants to put him back in front of this pit of vipers that tried to kill him twice already in chapter 23. God puts him back in order to discern the truth. And he, you know, you've got to be thinking, you know, I, I don't think that's a good idea. But he goes along with it. When Paul's statement regarding this good conscience got him a pop in the mouth, Paul rebukes them, possibly in anger, because they contradicted the law that they were supposed to uphold with a good conscience. Now, now this wasn't quite like Jesus calling the religious leaders uh, whitewashed tombs. There's a little bit more of a bite to Paul's statement here. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? I kind of think Paul got a little angry right there. Right? Now, there's all sorts of questions about how do we understand, how do we interpret what Paul does here or what he does next as well? Um, Augustine and, and Calvin uh, both thought that Paul's statement was a condemnation against these people. These religious leaders were whitewashed walls in fulfillment of Ezekiel 13. They're crumbling and ready to topple, but yet they're smeared with falsities in order to hide their true nature. And so when Paul says, oh, I didn't know he was high priest, it was kind of sarcastic, like, oh, I don't see any high priest before me. Do you see any high priest? I just see corrupt men in front of me. I don't see anyone worthy or befitting of that position. That's the way they understand it. But I don't actually think that that's what Paul's doing here. I think that Paul literally didn't know that he was the high priest. You see, 
between the time of Caiaphas, when Caiaphas was the high priest, Caiaphas and the, and the council, those were the ones that gave Paul the letter to go and to, to bind the Christians and to bring them back. Between that time in Acts chapter 8 and here in Acts chapter 23, there had been six different high priests, right? Ananias was the seventh. Now, this guy was a pill, right? He was definitely a sinner, but I honestly don't think that Paul knew who he was. And since this was an informal meeting, Ananias may not have been in all of his priestly garb, and so you wouldn't have recognized him from anyone else in the crowd. Or perhaps the, the command came from the crowd, and Paul didn't see who actually gave it. But regardless, I think that Paul is actually being sincere here because, number one, he addresses them as brothers, not as enemies. He says to them twice, brothers, right? You don't typically do that of somebody you're blasting right? Two, he apologizes. I did not know that he was high priest. And three, he quotes scripture as an indication of his desire to maintain a good conscience before God and this council by submitting to the truth and conforming his will to the will of God. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so Paul is showing humility here. He's showing repentance and faith. Even if he became angry, he dealt with it right then and there. Even if in anger, he said things that were true. And, and of course it was. I mean, Ananias was no saint, but that's another story altogether. You see, whether Paul had been wrongly imprisoned and, and stretched out before whips of the Roman cohort or his mouth had been bloodied by the Jewish Sanhedrin, whether by life or by law or by doctrine, Paul took courage to maintain a good conscience before God and others. Whether he was trying to maintain his rights or speak truth to his fellow Jews, Paul labored to be faithful to Christ in all things. You see, it doesn't take courage for us to plead or demand our own rights. It does take courage to seek what is lawful while submitting to the governing authorities. It doesn't take courage to beg for your life. It does take courage to entrust your life to the Lord and to take a stand for Christ, even if it might cost you that life. It doesn't take courage to curse your enemies. But it does take courage to turn the other cheek. It doesn't take courage to become angry or bitter towards your lot in life. It does take courage to repent and believe. It doesn't take courage to condemn those in sin. But it does take courage to love and to forgive. It doesn't take courage to pursue a life that the world would find pleasing. But it does require courage to live a life that is pleasing to God. You see, it takes courage to maintain a good conscience before God and others. Friends, this is a trait that we so desperately need today. God's call for us is not just to make bare professions of some empty faith in Christ and then look and live just like the world around us. But to maintain our faith with a good conscience up to this day. He doesn't want us going through our days 
just foolishly thinking or assuming that we're Christians just because we may have prayed a prayer or may acknowledge ourselves to be Christians. You know, when you fill out some, some census, you kind of put down, a, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you don't live that way. He doesn't want us to go through life with seared or defiled consciences towards God, but in a good conscience. He wants us to follow His teaching and follow His way of life. He's calling us to live our lives before God in all good conscience, and that takes courage. Courage to repent and believe. Courage to follow in faith. Courage to love despite the animosity. Courage to maintain a good conscience. And so take courage then to learn God's grace and to maintain a good conscience. And third, take courage to bear witness of Christ to the world. Now this ought to be obvious for us. It, it takes courage to bear witness to Christ to the world, right? But what takes place here in verses 6 through 11, we need to understand what's, what's really going on here. Paul's not trying to stir up division or dissension. Now Paul is wisely pinpointing the heart of the issue in order to direct them to Christ. You see, the reason why Paul is on trial, the core gospel tenet that is at stake here is the hope of the resurrection. It will come up again every single time Paul makes his defense. Every time he goes back to the resurrection, to the resurrection, to the resurrection. It's key in Paul's defense throughout the rest of Acts. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. All right? You see... The Pharisees believed that the law and prophecy of the Old Testament was given by angels, mediated to God's prophets, who then proclaimed it to others. They believed that a man's soul was everlasting, and so the spirits of the departed continued on until the final day of judgment, when at last there would be a a resurrection and their bodies and souls would be reunited in the resurrection of the dead. And, And that's much like what we believe as Christians. The Sadducees, on the other hand, held only to the first five books of the Bible, right? And even there, they treated it more like an ethical handbook. They treated it more like a a history uh, to maintain the heritage and culture of their nation rather than revelation from God. Right? They did not believe in angels and spirits in, or in the resurrection. When people died, they believed that they either ceased to exist or they kind of continued on in a shadowy existence uh, in Sheol, apart from God, apart from spirit, apart from angel or whatever. So they have no positive view of the afterlife. I think this is kind of ironic because, you know, demythologizing didn't start with 19th century German liberal Uh, Bible scholars, it actually started with Sadducees. It's nothing new under the sun. And so Paul is not on trial here because he has broken any civil laws. He's not trying to start some revolt. This is important for the Romans because they're, again, the tribune's trying to decide, okay, why are you on trial? Well, he's, he's on trial because he's holding to a faithful Jewish teaching that there happens to be disagreement about even within this council. So it maintains Paul's innocence here. But by identifying himself as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, he's telling them that a faithful believing Jew will have hope 
and most specifically, the hope of the resurrection. Right? If you're going to be a faithful Jew, you need to hold to the hope that God sets forward, and that's the hope of the resurrection. You see how this is leading to the gospel, right? Now, that was a major hurdle for the Sadducees. They had rejected God's revelation. They had refused even to acknowledge core Jewish teaching that were necessary for salvation. We have souls that will not die, but God offers us the hope of eternal reconciliation to Him, both body and soul, through the resurrection of the dead. But friends, though the Pharisees themselves were closer, they if they were truly going to be faithful to the teaching that they affirmed, they would need to accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because His resurrection is the foundation and the fulfillment of their hope. You see, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, along with Christ's fulfillment of Scripture, was the central gospel bridge whenever Paul was preaching to the Jews. That was his inroad to the gospel. And so Paul had the courage to address the central issue, the very heart of the matter, in order to point them to Christ. He's not being divisive here. He's not just trying to stir it up and to cause trouble. He's actually pinpointing, targeting the central issue that can lead to his explanation of the gospel, to give them the hope of Christ. And friends, His approach was neither to give a laundry list of every single discrepancy, everything that they did wrong and and how they were wrong and how they're going to go to hell for it. And and neither was his his, uh, strategy to go ahead and just, let's, let's only talk about what we can agree on, right? Let's find a mutual starting place, a safe place where, and we'll just kind of dialogue about that and just ignore all of the ways that we disagree. I say that because we have a tendency to go one way or the other right? Either you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're going to hell, or uh, let, let's ignore all the things we disagree about. Let's just talk about the things we agree on, and, and let's, let's call it good and be, pretend to be unit, united in, in Christ when, when we're actually not. No, Paul's goal here was to pinpoint the central issue and to proclaim the truth of God's Word on that matter. And, and friends, look at what became of it. Now, some utterly rejected the notion, but others drew near to accepting the truth. It says, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now, they're not professing faith in Christ yet, but here are these scribes who were formerly beating Paul. Now they're saying, We find nothing wrong with him. We think he's got a lot going for him. You never know. Maybe this gospel that he's proclaiming actually is from God. That's huge. Perhaps some of them came to believe that it was from God. And their hope of the resurrection was made secure through faith in Jesus Christ. But it happened because Paul took the courage to bear witness to Christ among them. And friends, it comes without question that that was Christ's purpose. Because on that night when Paul sat there in his barrack cell, perhaps wondering what would become of him, wondering if any of the events of the day would make any difference for Christ at all, the Lord Jesus stood by him. 
and said, take courage. For as you have testified faithfully to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You will bear witness to me to the ends of the earth. Well, friends, just like Paul, we too are to bear witness of Christ to the world. And the same command that he gave to Paul, he gave to us as well. Take courage. You're going to need courage if you are going to bear witness Christ in the world. But friends, this command that he gives, take courage, is not a command for you to just suck it up and to do better or to be better. Okay? It's not to toughen up, to grit your teeth and bear it. The command to take courage is a command to receive courage that comes from Christ. When he says, when Christ says take courage, he's saying, receive me. That's ultimately what he's saying here. Okay? You see, we are told over and over and over again that the courage to learn God's grace is already ours in Christ. We simply must receive it. In fact, 46 times we are told in the New Testament that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. Not that, okay, if you get your act together, then you'll receive grace. No, it's with us. Take a hold of it. All of these things that happen to us help us then to rest in the sufficiency of his ever-present and abundant grace. The courage to maintain a good conscience, it comes from knowing, according to Hebrews chapter 9, how much the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and that he will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And the courage to bear witness of Christ to the world comes from knowing that we have received power when the Holy Spirit had come upon us to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that even in Christ's command that He gives in in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations, he leaves them with this promise. He leaves us with this promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Guys, taking courage is simply receiving Christ. To stand Beside us, he comforts us, encourages us, whether we find ourselves like Paul in the midst of a prison cell in Jerusalem or he gives the command to go to the ends of the earth. Taking courage is really about looking to, receiving, and resting in Jesus. Looking to, resting, and receiving this founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is that courage that keeps us from not growing weary or faint-hearted. And so, let us take courage. Take courage by receiving Christ in order that we might learn God's grace to maintain a clear conscience and to bear witness of Christ to the world. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. Every, seems like every week I am reminded yet again that, that what matters most is not what we say to you, but hearing what you say to us. That it's not about what we do for you, but what you have done for us in Christ. That it's not about how we define success by circumstances or uh, blessings or things of that matter, but that you define success by faithfulness that, that comes by living in dependence upon you. And Lord, I pray that we would want that. God, help us to take courage in Christ. To truly be able to receive and to rest in the grace that you have given in Him that is sufficient for every single day, that is lavish, comes in abundance. If we would just open our eyes to see. Give us hearts that are zealous to know you and to love you and to follow you. That we would strive by your grace to maintain a good conscience so that by life, or by our teaching, we would bear witness of Christ to the world. And God, we thank you that over and over again, you promise us that you are always with us. You go before us. You go behind us. You are our front and rear guard. Everything that we experience in life is, is not without purpose, but is meant to serve your glory and our joy in Christ so that others might know Him and in turn make Him known until at last His name is known from sea to sea. And I pray that we would long for that, that we would hope for that, that as we walk out of here, we would treasure Christ all the more. It's in His name we pray. Amen.